Hello there, my name is Klein Neelology and I beat the often path by developing affordable solar grind solutions and multi-purpose devices for small growers globally. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual and outside-the-box success stories to remind us that there's much more to this thing we call life than what meets the eye in our everyday social media consumption. Joining me today is Dr. Klein Illelogy, and he's dedicated his life to agriculture and engineering. Discover how his curiosity led him down multiple career paths, ultimately leading him on a journey from his home in Nigeria around the world and ending up in the United States. Today, he's a professor of agricultural and biological engineering at Purdue University, and he's the co-founder of Jua Technologies, that's J-U-A, a company that makes solar-powered food dryers for small farmers in the developing world. He distilled his decades of experience into a meaningful product to combat food insecurity, and for that, he has my deep admiration. So here's Dr. Klein Illelogy of Jua Technology. Well, welcome to the show, Klein. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Ross. I have to say that your last name is one of the coolest sounding last names I've ever heard. I love the way it flows off of the tongue. Well, Where, where does it come from? It's from Nigeria, and, and Nigeria oh. by um, birth, and um, from Delta State in Nigeria, uh, just by the coast. And um, it's the ethnic identities, Urobo, and that's where the name comes from, yeah. I think it sounds great, Illelogy. <laughs> it's just got a nice <laughs> ring to it. It's very smooth nice. off the tongue. I love it. Well, welcome to the show. I'm so pleased to have you here. As we discussed before we started taping this, the reason that we bring people like you on the show is to spark discussions. And I think what you have done sparks a very interesting discussion on a variety of fronts. And I was telling you before we began that I briefly encountered via a random stranger the idea of drying food or fruits or freeze drying. Something I've never done, something I've never considered doing. But you have built a business around this, and it has a few implications for people like me and also other people around the world. So tell us a little bit about what it is that you do and how you got here. Great. Uh, so I always say my first job as, um, as a professor of agricultural and biological engineering at Purdue. So that's my day job. And um, I also am the uh, co-founder and CEO of uh, Joa Technologies International, which is uh, a company that uh, develops affordable solar drying devices uh, for growers globally. Um, our device is essentially uh, to dry produce. Uh, so fruits and vegetables, herbs, spices, medicinal plants, those types of things which have very high moisture, but also they're, uh, they're high, high in rich in nutrients, micronutrients and vitamins. And uh, one of the things uh, for these types of products is once they are dried, uh, they can store well for a very long time. So essentially, you're improving your shelf life. You're also reducing their weight. Uh, weight. And so they're very good. Uh, um, uh, you want to dry things like mangoes and fruits and veggies for, um, to use in cereals. Uh, people take them for hiking. Um, preppers who keep things for a long time, you know, they they right. try to store. So, so improving shelf life and also reducing uh, the other big thing for us um, in terms of our mission is to reduce post harvest losses 
for small growers in developing countries and waste. Uh, that's a huge thing if we can curb waste in and take all that wasted produce into dry shelf stable produce that can sell at a high premium. Uh, it's a win-win for, for food security as well as economic empowerment. So there's a variety of very cool things that you just discussed there. But first, I see that you're representing Purdue right now wearing the shirt. You've got the logo on, right? Yeah. You've got Purdue. So how long have you been a professor at Purdue? So I have been a professor, uh, should I say I've been at Purdue for, this is my 21st year. Uh, wow, but okay. I have been on the faculty um, of Ag and Biological Engineering for um, 19 of those 21st, 21 years. Um, prior to that, I was a postdoc, so working essentially under a professor. And um, uh, my areas are in grain post-harvest, um, produce drying, using solar, um, and um, I, I do also work on other things like um, adding value to, um, pro, um, shall I say, spent produce like, or spent grain, like distillers, grain brewers, grains, um, particularly technology, handling of grains, conditioning, drying, and, and stuff like that. So. The uh, drying of fruits and veggies is within my wellhouse, and and I started this out of a project supported by USAID, and that led to the development of the product. And um, at that point, I realized that the only way I'm going to get it in the hands of people is to commercialize it. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. So, flashback to when you were getting your doctorate. What were you studying at that time? So it's I, I studied agricultural engineering um, at the Slovak Agricultural University in Nitra, Slovenske Polnohorsporodarske University in Nitra. That's in Slovak language, and I it's very easy for me to repeat. <laughs> <laughs> and I um, wait. I know one thing. Hang on. Is this correct? I heard there's a tongue twister in Slovakia, and it goes "sturč prst skurz kurk." There's no vowels in it. It means when there's no rain, the road is dry or something like that. I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay. No, maybe it's something else. There are, long, there are a lot of tongue twisters. Um, for example, one, no of the vowels. One, one of the ones I like, the words, is uh, ice cream. It's okay. Zmerzlina. <laughs> Zmerzlina? Yeah. <laughs> nice. I like it already. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. So you studied over there in Slovakia? Is that where you... Okay, interesting. Yeah, so I studied over there. I spent five years in Slovakia, and uh, my PhD was in agricultural engineering, and I actually studied um, hematic storage, uh, primarily heat and mass transfer, and hematic stored corn was my research topic. Uh, but while I was in Slovakia, Cornell University in Itaca had a program on applied economics and business management very similar to their one-year master's in professional studies. They gave scholarships. It was supported by the Soros Foundation or Open Society Fund. And um, because the student at that time, all I can do is study. I enrolled in the program. And that really uh, gave me, in my mind, um, a lot of interest and exposure about business and, and what it is, economics, accounting, and things like marketing. Um, I also did some courses, um, again, offered 
at the University of Delaware in Slovakia, but the Cornell program was where uh, I'll say really exposed a lot of interest in business for me. And then that state, I got that degree, but it just, I shelved it, but it was somewhere there. So what, what attracted you to that, to that line of study? Because obviously you've committed a large part of your life to this. How did you get involved and why did you decide that this was something you were interested in? Uh, very good question. Um, my, um, I'll say by accident, really. Uh, my passion was flying. I wanted to be a pilot. And also like tinkering in things, uh, um, I, I know my nickname, uh, my dad called me was engineer and because I, I just fixed things all around the house. So I, I knew I liked engineering and I, I said, well, I'm going to fly or be an aeronautical engineer. Uh, flying was uh, is a very expensive um, program globally and in Nigeria, it's even quite expensive. Um, we didn't have aeronautical engineering in our universities. Um, I wasn't really from a, a, a family that was of means uh, well to do. So I, uh, I couldn't do flying. So I, I went to uh, I, my path then I thought was I'll study mechanical engineering in Nigeria, then come, go to, over to the States and, and pursue a master's or PhD in aeronautical or aerospace. I did not make it into mechanical engineering uh, when I did the entrance exam, but my scores were enough to get into an engineering program, but not mechanical. Mechanical mm. was one of those um, um, majors that was highly sorted by anyone who wanted to do engineering. So the mechanical, electrical, civil, the traditional ones. I even hadn't heard about agricultural engineering at all. Didn't even know that existed. And so uh, my mom went to the uh, university just to visit some professors and found out they had this program called agricultural engineering. They were lacking students and they had people like me who could come in with enough scores. Um, my score was sufficient to go into uh, that engineering program, but not mechanical because of, again, the numbers. My mom came back and uh, she told me, well, why not go see these professors? And she told me what they told her, and essentially what they told her was agricultural engineering was an engineering program. It's just application of engineering to agriculture. And by the way, if your son comes in, he, can, he will be able to change after the first year. Uh, in Nigeria, engineering is a five-year program. The first year is normally um, higher-level uh, math physics and, and, and chemistry. So I got into the program with the conviction or shall I say, I hope that I was going to change to mechanical engineering. For me, that was the cell. Um, so when I got into the program, we had a, one class on introduction to agricultural engineering the first year. And after that class, it was, for me, the class was more, uh, was what gave me that impetus to stick to agricultural engineering. I found out that it was beyond just applied engineering agriculture. Some of the things I learned is, I mean, Nigeria is a food insecure play, um, country. Um, most of the growers are poor. They had lack technology. Um, uh, I was going to be serving a part of the workforce and society that really hasn't been served. And, um, and, and, 
if you look at it, um, Nigeria needed more of developing its agricultural sector than its aerospace sector. We, we literally had nothing like aerospace, you know, it's only airlines. Um, if I was going to do that, I'll have to think of working overseas. So uh, it was the mission and then just the global mission of food, uh, environment and everything. It was the mission of, of what I, I, I believe was uh, the problem out there that ag engineers had to solve that kept me. So I, I pivoted from going looking at something I really liked and I have passion and I still have passion to fly actually. And I did some training just for fun, but yeah. um, I pivoted to, to this global mission of food solving the world's food in, um, um, problems uh, for the world's poorest uh, and, and things like that. And that's what really uh, um, got me into the profession. Incredible. So your first observation, you realized that it's an easy problem with an easy solution. And you said, I'll figure this thing out in five minutes, right? Actually, uh, not really. It's um, the, the um, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> if you look at the problem of the poor and, and look at ag engineering, um, the, the first thing I realized is that, uh, and actually my, I know my dad sort of made fun of me. It was like, you know, I hope you realize that the people you're going to be serving are the poor people, you know, in Nigeria, they're farmers who who whole holes and cutlasses. They're not farmers like here, you know, with combines and tractors and technology, you know, you're talking of peasant farmers. And, and, but if you look at the mission, it's like you're trying to solve, provide solutions for people that really don't have a lot of money to pay you. So when you are engineering anything, it has to be, cost is, has to come into play. Uh, you, you're going to be developing technologies that for people a lot who are not educated. So when you think of that, it's an engineering challenge on its own because a lot of things have to be intuitive. Um, you, you look at the global needs. Uh, they are so varied. We really ha have needs everywhere. And so it, it's a really enormous uh, when you look at the solution i mean the problems to uh, and um but it's a noble one and um at that time i selected it it was not for a better term it was not the in thing uh, now um i think it's an in thing globally that uh, people are gravitating towards the profession but when I, I was in it and when i selected it it was not something um, that was in. In fact, most of my colleagues that graduated with me are not in the profession. Uh, most of them they are went somewhere else. Yeah, I, I think probably they chased the money, perhaps. Uh, yeah, probably, probably t less than ten percent. Hmm. And 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 I I don't blame them, you know, really, because there are no jobs out there in most of the developing countries for agriculture and biological engineers. You know, you you don't have. Um, equipment companies that are selling to farmers. Farmers don't have the money to buy equipment. So, so it, it's it's. Uh, but if you look at it, it's it's a blue ocean, right? It's it's an opportunity uh, to create something, um, and uh, and and look at that market and develop that market. So, 
it might seem like it's it's something that's not lucrative, but in my opinion, it's the blue ocean. Mm. Well, I applaud you for making that decision because it seems to me like when most people realize that they have to make a choice or if they think they have to make a choice between making a bunch of money and doing something noble, whatever that means, the vast majority of people just choose the money. So I'm very fascinated in what motivated you to pursue nobility, which is something that I really deeply admire in any human being versus what's going to make you the most money. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's it's not a easy decision, but I think um one of the things I've realized over time in my life and in anyone's life is passion actually wins in anything you do. Um if it's um ag engineering, if it's mechanical, it's flying, if it's uh in in soccer, in sports, I think uh, whatever you or even your program, you know, if you have passion in it, it wins because um, that passion uh, gets other people excited. It's very um, 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 how will I put it? Contagious, and 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 uh, I think I bring passion to what I do, and I. Um, I'm very excited with what I do. And frankly speaking, um, it's time for us to make an impact to that sector of the world. Uh, it's it's a huge sector. And um, if we're going to solve some of the global problems from climate change all the way to food insecurity and all that, uh, this is it, you know. I completely agree. And popular or not, it's obviously going to be one of the defining issues of our time and certainly the next several decades around the world. There's nothing bigger than food insecurity on a global scale, I think, and there certainly won't be, especially if these systems start breaking down and if the trade starts breaking down, the oil pipelines start breaking down, food insecurity is only going to become more of an issue as we go forward. So you travel to Slovakia, your mind is awakened, you realize, okay, maybe I'll stick with this thing that I thought I didn't want to do. And you come back, uh, or you come to the United States. How did you end up becoming a professor at Purdue? A very good question. So finished my five years undergrad in Nigeria. Uh, right after I finished, and I was doing a, supposed to be a one year, uh, they call it national service. Uh, my six months into that year, one year, or probably more than six months, I got a scholarship, a government scholarship to go to Slovakia to pursue a PhD. So in ag engineering, so I go to Slovakia, I, while doing it, I did a, a master's in applied economics and business management, like I mentioned before. And after that, I was looking to come back to Nigeria. Unfortunately, um, to go back to Nigeria. Unfortunately, at that time, we had a dictatorial government. Things were chaotic. It, this was in 1999. And um, I went, did a scoping mission. A lot of people advised that uh, it's not right. Um, I should um, look at going elsewhere to get experience. So I pursued other, you know, various places, actually several places and the u.s was the one that panned out um that i got and i eventually moved first to the university of minnesota worked on the professor um for two and a half years doing research on uh the storability of corn 
um, variety is essentially how corn stores under various temperatures and, and moisture content. And then after two and a half years, I moved to Purdue. And actually, um, just before, um, about 9-11, I started a day before 9-11 at Purdue. And um, I, at Purdue, I was working in um, the areas of grain storage and handling uh, with, with a professor uh, by the name of Dr. Dirk Meyer and, um, and worked there for three and a half years and uh, joined before I, uh, I was blessed to have a faculty position, some, a position open I, I interviewed and, and, and got accepted. And while at Purdue um, on the faculty, I actually, my initial uh, time on the faculty as an assistant professor, I focused on feedstocks like um, biomass uh, for the production of biofuels. Uh, if you remember, just after 9-11, um, under President Bush, we were talking about our biofuels and, and growing our own crops from switchgrass and corn stover and all that stuff. So I was Absolutely. part of that fi- phase. Mm. So that's what I did initially. And then um, in 2007, I started coming back to the field, doing some work here and there in um, storage. I also work in work did research in distillers grains. That's the core product. After ethanol is produced from corn, it's used primarily as a feed. I did a lot of work in that area. But in 2007, uh, when Dr. Dirk Mai left Purdue uh, for another university. He used to do the storage and handling part. I took a lot of that. Um, it was anyway my background. And in 2009, I started doing international work. Um, first in Nigeria, Ghana. And uh, that's when I went back, uh, called to my roots, uh, where I was uh, raised and brought up to, to see some of the challenges growers faced and um i saw those challenges in ways i hadn't seen even prior to my leaving nigeria because in a lot of the u.s aid and u.s department of agriculture foreign act service research projects and capacity development projects in nigeria and ghana and then subsequently in kenya and senegal we were actually going to the villages and working mm. at the grassroots with farmers. So you basically were seeing a lot of the issues they faced. Yeah. And that's what prompted um, uh, a lot of the development that eventually drove me into uh, into starting the company, yeah. Incredible. So I think this is a pretty much a foregone conclusion, but would you say that travel was an instrumental part of your perspective and your success in general? Oh, absolutely. I love travel. Um, I, I travel is if you can afford it or your work takes you in my case, mostly for my work, um, it opens your eyes to a lot of things, perspectives in terms of your work, perspective in terms of life, perspective, perspective in terms of how you, how you see things and see other people. Uh, it helps you appreciate the world, you know, the, it, it helps you understand that the world is bigger than your own family, your own environment, your own neighborhood, uh, bigger than the country in which you stay in. And um, I've been to countries I will never have thought. Slovakia was 
not a country that I would have ever thought of going. Most, if you ask most Nigerians and most people, will think of the Western countries. Uh, historically, African countries will think of their colonial countries. So the UK, um, France, you know, Germany, you know, those kind of Western yep. Europe. Um, Same in the U United States generally. Yeah, the US, Canada, Australia, right? We'll think of those countries. Uh, going to Slovakia was of the beaten path, you know. It was absolutely. Uh, um, I had to. I, I got to learn a, a different language. Learn to write, read, and, and and speak. I got to learn a, a lot of Slavic languages like Russian, Polish, um, Czech. I when you learn a language, a different language, it's some depth in 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 understanding culture and thinking of people. And uh, right now, I've, I was listening to um, Daniel Tonkapi. Yes, you know, it's, it's from Kazakhstan. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tajikistan. Um, I've been to countries that I wouldn't have thought of going. And these are one of the most beautiful places with very beautiful people. And one of the things in my travels that I'm always fascinated by or shall I say reaffirmed by, is humans are all the same. We want the same for our families. We want a peaceful life. Um, we want good but I thought you were going to say, I thought the answer there is, you know, I, traveling makes it easier to hate other people. You see us as us versus them. We're all separate. They're just groups, right? That's <laughs> yeah. the message. Yeah, we're not all the same. We're supposed to hate each other, Klein. That's how it works. <laughs> it's 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 amazing. I mean, I uh, I mean, really, traveling helps to heal. Yeah, and I agree. and and um, you just come to realize that we're all the same. Just living in different locations. That's all. Yep. And obviously, our cultures mold our perspectives but inherently in the morning everybody's going to work you wake up in the morning uh, at normal time people are going to work in california nigeria ghana brisbane you know um, medellin in colombia i don't know you name it people wake up and kids are going to school and uh, you go to the elementary schools and teachers are teaching and pretty much everybody has an aspiration to get a job and uh, study something and those who are athletes have the same aspirations and so it, it's 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 fascinating it, and um, that's what I like, love about traveling and the fascination is that while we're the same we see um, the other thing about traveling is you see snippets of differences that shouldn't reinforce, oh, they do things differently. But out of curiosity, wow, I didn't know you could do this that way. I didn't know you could prepare rice that way. I didn't know you could eat that that way, you know. I didn't know, oh, you have this flavor of wine. So, uh, yes, we are all this, you see the same goals and aspirations and things. But you also see the differences that makes the world beauty. And uh, someone, I heard this saying, 
is that if you don't like diversity or differences, go to the zoo. You know, no one goes to the zoo to see all elephants or all lions. You know, you go to the zoo and you're fascinated by the variety of animals you see and the variety of birds and the colors and just how they all, you know, in their own ecosystem. So, you know, behave and and that's the world and that's that's why i love traveling and even in in right now um my company sells technology globally and i always ask what are you drawing you know what is it going to be used for you know because uh, we are all trying to right store foods in, improve shelf life all the same goal but drawing different things and going to be prepared in different ways. So it's very exciting, yeah. That is very exciting. And sidebar, before we go forward, which country makes the best jollof rice? Well, that's a, that's a, you know the debate. It's a, it's, it's a fight between um, Nigeria, Senegal, um, Ghana, right? I will say, um, to be honest, um, <laughs> I know my Nigerian folks. We, I, I root for Nigeria, but, but I respect all of them. I, I love all the kinds of jollofs I, I have tasted, but, I'll give it up to Nigeria. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we got one vote for Nigeria. <laughs> okay, noted. Very good. Very important. These are the real things that matter on this show. Um, yeah. But no, I completely agree with everything that you've said. I've always had a hunch. It's like, what, to what degree do we prioritize travel? And it's just a theme that's come up over and over again with so many people I've talked to. It's impossible to ignore how many different people have been impacted by travel and how many people found this kind of career or idea based on travel. You just, you can't ignore it and you can't say that it's just a small detail. That's what yeah. I've come to realize. It's a big thing. And yeah. And a lot of people do what you described. I've seen that arc several times on this show where somebody leaves their home environment, they go somewhere else for an extended period of time, and then they bring something back home. And like you said, they see their home environment in a new way. I find that to be a really fascinating thing. You see it with fresh eyes and new skills. And obviously from the time that you did your first degree to going to Slovakia, to going to the United States, and then coming back, you had learned a ton about other cultures and about the world and, of course, about your profession and the problems of the world. And then you come back and you say, now I have some new insights. And what I find really fascinating is you've got decades of this career, decades of this exploration. You spent much of that time learning about what the problem is. You don't even know what the problem is. Now you have a better understanding. And then out of all that noise, all of that information, all of that cultural stuff that's in your brain, you distill that into one product and that product is a solar powered freeze dryer i love kind of stuff like that so at, at what point did you realize this was the product that you wanted to make out of everything else you could have done yeah, very good so uh just to quickly correct it this is solar uh dryer not freeze dry but solar dryer. oh sorry that's my so, ignorance sorry, yeah, yeah yeah great so um thanks um that's a great question um, everything has to do with power source. So if you look at the wall, then everything we do, uh, power plays a huge role. And in dehydration or drying, power is the primary source of energy. Either you 
um, that produce, produces heat either directly by the sun in, in case of solar or it will be with sun and using photovoltaics to power fans that drives away that moisture or you have to in some way um, um, use a form of fuel natural gas wood biomass what what have you fuel oil and so power drives everything and if you look at the enormous amount of power in food production um, a lot of people will tell you it's almost 60 to 70 percent um, in a in a, a in a facility that involves drying in fact in dried fruit production i was just speaking to a kenyan um, lady who works for a company in Kenya, she told me 60% of her operating cost is on her drives alone. That is almost death uh, to when you think of manufacturing food. So uh, what drove me towards solar energy was, well, I'm trying to create this technology to the developing part of the world, typically humid tropics. They have an abundance of sunshine, yet it's very underutilized. So uh, that's one of the uh, poorest, uh, most less resourced area in terms of uh, power utilization. You can look at the uh, NASA view from, from the space station. And if you look at Africa, it's all dark because literally uh, we don't have power plants at night is all dark so i started looking how do you efficiently get that power source to to to, to dehydrate foods and the only the the answer there is solar and so it's how do you harness solar energy efficiently in such a way uh, that dries foods hygienically um, people in this part of the world use solar we call it open sun drying but if you travel to nigeria ghana Sub-Saharan Africa, even if you go to China and, and, and uh, Southeast Asia or even um, the, um, the Cari um, Caribbeans as well as South America, small growers drive stuff on the roadside or on the road. I've seen it all. In, in, in China, I've seen them drying stuff on the road, Ecuador on the road, Nigeria on the road, Ghana side, side of the road on rocks. These are just spread and swept off the ground. They're just spread on the ground, dirt or some tarred surface and swept up with stones and all those dirt. Now, for grains, they can dry and try to clean off. But when you're drying vegetables, when you're drying tomatoes, mangoes, you can't dry those on the ground because it's high moisture, all the sand and all that will get into it. So we're looking at not just solar dry, but something that can dry stuff hygienically. And um, that's what led me to the creation of this unit. By the way, my our project, which was not just me, but a whole bunch of colleagues at Purdue University, was a USAID Feed the Future lab for post-harvest um, handling and food processing and I was leading the drying section to develop dryers for maize that's corn and I developed a larger unit took it to Kenya 
in Senegal. And while in Kenya in Senegal, while I was teaching them about drying maize, all the questions I got was drying other things. No one, I was amazed at the end, people came back and they were not asking me about drying maize. They said, well, can you dry um, kale? Can you dry okra? Can you dry tomatoes? Can you dry mangoes? Can you dry bananas? And also I asked my colleagues, I'm, I'm amazed. We came here to dry maize, but everyone is asking about all the things. So I went back and said, well, I think farmers need something to dry multiple crops. Um, a dry, just drying one crop and even just drying maize wouldn't cut it out. So I started looking at a multi-purpose unit. I'd also done a survey in Ghana that led me towards that. But why I focused on the um, fruits and veggies, because no one was doing that, and is the most difficult to dry. Uh, if you look at moisture ranges, maize can easily be dried on the field, comes out of the field less than 20%. It's easily dried by the roadside or on a tarp and swept easily and cleaned. Um, mangoes, it's like 80-90% water. So you, you, you're looking at a huge magnitude of different in terms of moisture removal, no technologies out there. So I started looking at, that's where I focused on, even though it was not really the interest of my project, but if you know, of course you know business, it's not about it was the interest of the project necessary, but was the interest of the customer, the need of the people. So that's what actually is the, it's what I saw in the field and the need I saw out there that led me to focus on, on drying. Um, and it was a larger dryer, but I actually, it's another story altogether. Um, I wanted to develop something fast. I wanted to develop something that already mimicked what they were already doing. And I wanted to develop something that was easily mass produced and delivered globally. Um, one of, that's something I never thought of just as an academic in the lab. But once you try to start developing something to take to the mass market, you have to deal with logistics, last mile delivery. You have to think deal with cost, technology access, all those things. And all those things informs the way your design will take shape. And that's what led to the design being the way it is. Mm. So how long did it take you to finalize that design from the minute that you realized that that's what you wanted to do? Uh, the, it took me about, um, say, um, about two years. Uh, the first year was more of a prototype made of wood. And a lot of the testing was done um, um, at Purdue. And they had various iterations from clot. I visited various folks trying to design various things, working with undergrad and grad students um, who I directed doing the research. And eventually, once I got that was what it was, um, I went to the design department at Purdue on campus, and I met with a designer, a visiting professor by the name of Hiju Kim. Uh, she now works for IDEO. Um, design company, uh, but she became my, and she is still my my lead designer 
uh, on contract. And essentially, Hiju Kim, I took my ideas to Hiju Kim, and Hiju, Hiju Kim and I sat down, and I told Hiju I provide engineering, and I, I and you, she provides um, design aesthetics. Um, I told her I wanted something that was going to be designed for a valuable customer, and that customer was the small grower in a developing country. I didn't want something ugly. I said, you know, you know, you see, I see a lot of products developed for developing countries. They are ugly. I'm like, I want this grower to look at this product and say, this, it was developed for me. I want it to be nice and looking, but I also want it to appeal to consumers in the U.S. Um, or in the West, consumers in Europe. Now, so I was looking at, yes, this is the market, but I also wanted to appeal for those who have home gardens and things like that in the U.S. or even small growers in the U.S. because we have small growers as well. So Hedra and Kim, uh, Hedra Kim, and I and I worked on the design, and um, I'm glad Hedra and I worked on it because she brought a design perspective that I did not have um, in terms of looking at economics, looking at design stuff and ways, um, looking at um, human factor and stuff like that. And then um, we worked with an amazing manufacturer, um, a local manufacturer in Indiana, who saw the design and told us, hey, we can manufacture this. <laughs> you guys got to start all over again. And he recommended us to another designer to design for manufacturing. So it was an eye-opener for me because I thought, oh, I spent money on doing this, and then well, then I realized I got to spend more money. <laughs> on, sounds like business. Yeah, just changing everything I had. But I had, I had, between Hiju I and uh, this design for manufacturer, we got it done. And I, I, I must commend the, the manufacturer because... Um, we were nobodies, you know, we're a startup, and he literally treated us like we were his uh, top customers. Do you think that was because he saw the value in what you were trying to achieve? I think it was because of that. I think um, one thing I liked about the manufacturer, he asked questions about what was this for and what was the mission, and he, he loved the mission instantly so he bought into mission and then the other thing um i think in the state of indiana we are actually blessed with is um i am from purdue and um a lot of um people root for purdue yeah in in the company you have purdue engineers and alums or nef you know what have you and i think also that rubbed off on us so he loved the mission, and I think also uh, he loved the people he was doing with, dealing with. And I, I have huge respect for our manufacturer. He's he's taken us. I'll say he's one of the key people that got us to where we are. That's incredible. So it's proof that if you focus on something of value, you just might find people who think like you. Maybe. Exactly. And um, the lesson I heard, I learned is. It's not enough to go to someone to, to say, you want this built. Tell your story. Um, and I, I don't think I have even um, done 
justice to my story. I, I, I spoke to a marketer one, just not too long ago. He was trying to help us with our marketing. And he looked at the website and said, I'm confused. He said, um, it looks like the pictures you have there is like developing countries, but you want to sell to the U.S., what have you, and all that. And I, and he clarified our mission. I said, you know, our mission is for the small growers, for developing countries. That's our mission. And I think people in the U.S. and the West will like that mission and buy into it. So um, how you tell your story and carries a lot into your marketing. So uh, it should be one message. And that message could be, like in our case, um, what, what drove us as a company and what keeps driving us is we want to solve food insecurity, we want to solve food wastage, we want to solve economic empowerment for small growers globally. And we know most of them live in the developing countries. Is that something only developing countries folks like? No. I think a lot of Americans love that. Mm. I think a lot of folks in the West love that because a stronger developing country is also a stronger country for us for, as Americans. No one wants poverty. And everyone will buy into that mission of saving the poor. Everyone will buy into the mission of of helping small growers. We all love our food here. So I just realized in that, in the question by this marketer, I told my my associate, I said, Prasanna, you know, I know our mission. We need to just put it front and center. That's our story. Let's tell our story and and, and people will buy into it. And I, I was reminded by my manufacturer because literally um, the first thing when he, he does, when he, he meets introduces me to someone he tells our story say hey there's a guy from Purdue professor you know he's doing this to solve world hunger he tells that you know plain and simple and and that's what we need to keep doing um, because the story is actually a good one it is the best one not just a good one <laughs> one of the best <laughs> and oh, I think you. it's a deeply inspiring so as we sort of wind down the end of our hour here I wanted to ask, now that you've got this product out, after all of the hurdles and challenges, now that it's actually out in the wild, how has the response been? Have the small growers given you feedback? Oh, the response um, has been great, has been great. In fact, when we first uh, took it out in 2018 to show small growers in, in, in Senegal and Kenya, um, I remember one lady when we brought the, the product to her house, she said, it's like God appeared to me. I mean, it's just, it, it's just phenomenal. Um, we, we, we've, I, I always like listening to what people say before I, I talk about the products. So, so I really, really see if they're, they really like it or not. And um, for most part, people are excited about the product. It's serving the need. Um, we've, um, it's, I'll say it's not really known globally, unfortunately, uh, but we, uh, in the part that is known, we're growing in Kenya. Uh, last year we supplied the government 8,000 units the year before 8,000 units. Um, we have a subsidiary company in Kenya now, and we can, 
ship the product all over Kenya and in parts of East Africa. And we had to start the subsidiary in Kenya because of the response in Kenya. Uh, we've sold in tw over 28 states in the U.S. and um, over 10 different countries from Tajikistan all the way uh, to, um, uh, to um, Australia. So um, what, what is our hang-up is we need, we don't have capacity, human capacity, as well as capital to scale marketing and access. And, and if we can scale marketing and access, um, that will be great. But we even have a more exciting product. Um, the the Hytray, you see at the back there, is just one of the products. Our signature product is the Dehymelion. It's actually a multi-purpose solar dehydrator and power generator. Mm -hmm. um, like Delphi.